the special edition of NZSA Live. The following content was recorded at our 2018 National Writers Forum. We're releasing it as part of NZSA Connect to help New Zealand authors and writers stay connected during the COVID-19 national lockdown. Today's audio came from a discussion between Anahira Gildar, Heniwini Eston, and Vana Manciadis called Translating the Stars on Book Translation. Welcome everyone, thank you. I just felt like we need a little clear of the room because I've been in this room for like three hours, maybe four hours. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, that's such a long time. So this session, um, all the sessions I've had in this room have been amazing. I have listened to Albert Wendt, I have listened to Renee, there's been amazing discussions and hopefully that's what we're going to have here as well. But I do recognise that at 3.30 in the afternoon, this is the tired time, the time when people have been going for hours. So thank you so much, everyone, for being here. That's massive. And I would like to ask you, if it's not too uncomfortable, if you would nicky, nicky, nicky down here. Come on. <laughs> Come on down for a conversation. Because... Because this session is um, really, we want to design it as a conversation. We want to be able to have a discussion, yeah. and it'd be really great if you guys want to chip in with questions, or if you've got an, um, a really um, pressing, you know, thing you want to say, or question you want to ask, or opinion. So, he uri ahau no nati rau kawa ki te tonga, ko ana he regildei tō ku ingoa, nō reira, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā katou katoa. So I'm honoured to be sitting here this afternoon with these esteemed guests, Vana Manasiadis and Hedwini Easton. Not only are they fantastic people, probably heaps of you know them already, but also both writers and both skilled translators. Thank you so much for moving down, that's awesome. <laughs> so Vana is a second generation Greek poet, translator and lecturer at AUT. As co-editor of the Seraph, Seraph Press translation series, she has edited and translated from the Greek for Navaya Katafia Shipwrecks Shelters, and she and Maria Rakuraku co-edited the wonderful book that is the springboard for our discussion today, Tatai Fitu, Seven Māori Women Poets in Translation. 
She is also the author of poetry collections, Ithaca Island Bay Leaves, A Mythistorima, and The Grief Almanac, a sequel which is forthcoming in 2019. Hiruini is a Māori academic equity leader in the Faculty of Culture and Society at AUT. He is a teacher by nature, a skilled communicator, who brings his knowledge of Māori tikanga and language to the fore and articulates the value of the Indigenous perspective on any subject matter. He describes himself as a descendant of legends from historic and historic narratives embedded in Parihauraki, Maniapoto, Ngāti Rehu and Wera, or Wales. He's currently completing a Masters in Creative Writing and is one of the crucial translators in this book, Tākaipetu. So, <clears throat> welcome to you both and thank you for joining us today, you guys as well, for this discussion. Um, we really hope this, this will become, as I said before, a discussion where we can open the floor and we can all have questions. Um, and because I imagine there's actually some incredibly sharp minds in this room, so <clears throat> I don't want to leave it to myself. So, <laughs> translation is the key topic that we're going to be wrangling this afternoon. And you know, this is really a topical uh, issue in New Zealand right now, um, with a somewhat renewed interest in te reo Māori, thankfully. Um, and I wondered, before we started, how many of you in this room actually are translators at all? Come on, whether you think, whether, yes, Kilda. What about what about those who've had work translated? Hi, Kilda. Um, and um, those who, uh, all of us, I'm sure, uh, have partners or friends or colleagues who we feel like we have to translate. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly, that's the case for me. So, so we're all translators. So we can all talk authoritatively on this subject. So. Translation has been around since the beginning of language, really, and actually it's a really meaty subject. Um, and it wasn't until we sort of made this book that I asked myself a lot of questions around translation that were really, really important, really crucial. Um, and thankfully, I have these fantastic experts here to help me <laughs> unpack what this is all about. So uh, just to begin with, I wondered if Hiruini and, and Vana would tell us a little something about yourselves um, in relation to your work as translators, how you came to this work, and perhaps your linguistic backgrounds and um, maybe borders, backgrounds, linguistic backgrounds and borders. So. That's quite a lot. Only a few things. Kia koutou from me. Um, oh, how to begin? Uh, I, I guess I, I like what you said about how we're all translators. I think that's 100% true. I think we are all translating all the time, uh, especially when we navigate uh, various linguistic or cultural boundaries. And for me personally, um, I grew up in a very Greek household where we spoke Greek at home, but because of looking so white Pakia was like a secret that I had that no one else really knew about. Um, or I could keep it that way if I wanted to and be someone completely different. And of course, that, um, that was very uh, destructive. So finally, when I went back to Greece to live for 10 years, um, more quite recently as an adult i uh, I discovered that uh, that didn 't have to be a secret anymore and <laughs> and when I came back to Aotearoa, um, I had a completely different relationship with um, the place uh, uh, my need to really discover and uh, recognize and understand um, 
what I had felt had been um, refused me, which was te ao Māori and um, te reo and um, Māori tanga, and just this part that was speaking much more to my Greek side than the Pākehā had ever spoken to. So uh, that's my most recent journey, and I think it sort of led really specifically to Tatai Fitu and my amazing collaborations, um, which I'm so thankful for, which have given me so much. Mm. Yeah. Kia ora. Kia ora, Kia ora, tata. E ngā reo, e ngā mana. Tēnā koutou katoa. The voices, the dignitaries, greetings. Salutations. This is an, an acknowledgement to all of our Kroakuya mm. who are no longer here with us, but they informed us. So, building upon their deal, I'm just removing them from that seat, putting them over here. Kapai. <laughs> um, okay. My mahi is I look into the word. Um, I go back to Media Simpson last century. She was from Whakatohia. She was one of the first um, Māori language commissioners, official. Her kōrero was kitiro ki te tikanga me kawa o te kupu. Mm. Right? Every word has a purpose and a meaning. So we'll start with this one. Kia ora. Please? What does it mean? Right, let's huruku into the word. Kia, to have or be. To have or be. Order. Health. Life, health, well-being. Where does that word come in, come from? So we ruku some more. Or, from, ra. Ah, ah, kia ora, to have or be of sun. Scientists, any scientists? Photosynthesis. <laughs> Every living thing has needs the sun. Kapai? What other cultures has Ra for sun? Egyptians. Right. When the Māori left there, we said, look after the sun. Don't forget your aura. You are solar. And so we are solar beings in human form. Go in the Pacific, la, la. Uh, Spanish, hola. Ah, kia ora. That's what I do. Ruku into the kupu to find more meaning. Kia ora. Kia ora. Kia ora. <laughs> um, great. So thank you for that. I um, has anyone read this book? Has anyone got this book or read it? And the audience? Oh, great. So there are copies of this out at the front table. Just a little plug. Um, and um, this incredible book has had so many contributors. It was co-edited by Vana and Mariah Rakuraku, as I said before. And um, it has uh, seven poets in, in it, including Mariah, Miriam Grace Smith, um, Michelle Ngamoki, True Paraha, uh, Alistair Pungasamabul, Dale Takitimu, Kiripiahana Wong. And the translators were Jamie Cowell, Heroine East, so um, a lot of people were involved in um, this making of this precious book. So I'd like just now for you guys, Vana and Hiruini, maybe to give me the origin story of this book. Like, how did it come about? So I was saying to someone earlier today, they were saying, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm just chairing the session, 
you know, I'm just cheering it. Actually, they were like, oh, that's quite intimidating. I'm like, yes, yes. But I don't actually have to have all the knowledge. I just have to be really nosy. So, <clears throat> so um, I wondered if you guys would like to tell me, maybe starting with you, Vana, as the co-editor, um, what the origin story of Tatai Fetu was. Um, I feel like uh, I, I want you all to imagine Mariah Rakuraku sitting next to me um, because it wouldn't come into being without her and uh, she, she was uh, such a bond and um, such a strong force so I, I really want to motion to her and um, to give her mana and to bring her into the space. Um, Helen is the publisher of the of, of Serif Press. Um, Helen Rickaby down in Wellington, and um, we were discussing the uh, we were discussing bringing into life a series of translations. Um, initially, it began as an idea uh, as I'd come back from Greece with all these notions of um, of uh, exposed identity and um, bringing back voices from Greece, very political voices, very you know. Vo very angry voices um, given Greece's uh, economic woes and and um, I wanted to I, it was a very personal thing for me to begin with and then very quickly we were ashamed we thought well why how can we not have begun with Tereo actually um, uh, the 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 origin of the whole translation series we felt um, very strongly uh, very quickly should should be should have uh, Tereo voices um, and we we started talking to Mariah um, it was really a case, the whole process, I have to, I almost want to focus on the process of this book as opposed to the result, the, the artifact, which is a beautiful artifact and it is the result of the process, but the process over a year long of collaborating with people and talking to people, the various poets and the translators, um, sometimes via Maria, always together, sometimes via myself, was a wholly beautiful thing and um, it was uh, so I feel like there's almost the origin stories are very ongoing and without a, a specific discrete moment in time I feel like it was a very developing growing organic um, corridor that Began and and is and continues as a corridor, which is um, for me a, one of the beautiful aspects of it. Mm. Yeah. Hilda. Mm. Um, so, Hedwini, when did you come on board? And you know, what was that process like for you? What did, what was your response to the proposal? Okay, honestly. Yeah. Hi. I was, of course. I, I was <laughs> coerced. Like I was coerced. <laughs> <laughs> Vana was one of my lecturers in um, <laughs> Masters of Creative Writing. It wasn't. It wasn't oh. like that. It was and like that. It was totally like that. So her work colleague was is my supervisor, <laughs> and Vana just sort of mentioned in corridor conversation about a translator um, for Māori, and I'm going to name him because he's Vano. I am, yeah. Not here, James, <laughs> James George. He's doing his court at all tomorrow morning. Um, and he said, oh, Hedwini, 
because what I'm doing in my master's is translating a waiatum from a manuscript of my uncle from Te Reo Māori into Te Reo Pākehā. And he said, oh, yeah, he'd be great. So my response when he said, Vana's going to contact, and she did, and I went, shit, why me? <laughs> uh, there are other people that can do it. But I thought, actually, it could help me with my own translation work. And that's how I got on board until I got the poem, and I had a look at it in English, and I went, holy hell. <laughs> Okay, awesome. Elix- elixirs of ladies. What the heck is that? <laughs> I'm saying that because it's her poem. <laughs> and we're all whānau and we tātou the whetū. <laughs> this, this is what it, the whole process has been like, I have to say. Um, and I just want... Okay. <laughs> yep. You're seeing it in, in, in real time. <laughs> um, it, it really was, um, you know... So v- that conversation that I had with James George, yeah. it was an example and an expression to me of Whanaungatanga that was so part of this whole process. Who do you know that would be, oh, I know this person who's doing this amazing work and la 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 and you have this whole conversation and it's not just a case of flipping an email over to someone and seeing if they you know have some space in their timetable to do a little bit of I'm very I'm demeaning a lot of great people's processes here by saying that actually but I, I, I was very much um, a, a, a process of, of whānau and um, connection and, um, and, and layer building um, very much so yeah, yeah. And, and I think you brought a lot to the he's very humble Hedda, he's yeah. very very humble yeah he is. yeah, yeah. yeah. He is. Um, uh, they say. <laughs> yeah. So that's really interesting because um, how many? T- there's quite a few translators, mm. and how did you locate them mm. all? And because um, because it, it's not like there are you know it's not like you can just find heaps and heaps of translators into Te Reo mm. Māori into English mm. around the place. Did they have? Did anyone have any particular reluctance? Or was there any particular obstacles? Uh, so again, it was mu- it was very much a relationship based. Uh, the whole you know, the whole project was very relationship based, and it began with um, Hemi Kelly, with whom I'd worked on shipwreck shelters, because in shipwreck shelters, um, I, I we end with a, a a translation from the Greek, in parenthesis via the English into Te Reo Māori, which Hemi Kelly uh, translated for me, and we so we had that c- collaboration already. We um, specifically did not include an English version in this, so in some ways they're companion books to me. Um, so we didn't include an English version, and we had a lot of discussion with Hemi about that, not including, but going straight from the Greek to the Te Reo Māori, um, and providing a link in the book if anyone was really desperate to read the English. Um, so we'd had this kind of long discussion over uh, several years over translation, and of course then he started doing work with Witi Ihimaira, and he suggested to me Jamie Cowell, who was the translator of a couple of other poems, Maraya Rakuraku's and Michelle Namoki's in the book, um, who is a force. She lectures at AUT also. Um, she is uh, 
very, she's a, an incredible advocate of te reo. Um, just last week we were at the Going West Festival and um, we closed the festival. Kiri Piana Wong, um, she read her poem from the book in the English uh, and Jamie uh, performed uh, a te reo. Uh, she used to tour internationally with Kapahaka and she just blew everyone away. So she um, was, her wairua was really in this project right from the beginning and she had to be part of it. Mm. Um, then uh, uh, we had uh, Te Atahia, she had worked with um, uh, Marco Sonzoni who very early on, he also, as part of the translation series, had translated uh, Māori, uh, sorry, an Italian poet's work, and again, he also wanted to close his edition with a poem in Te Reo, so Te Atahia um, had been a long collaborator. Um, Vona Rapatahana came in a bit later, and that is an interesting story, because Hemi was also going to be translating through Paraha's poem, and if you have the, the book, or you, or you see it at some point, her poem is the most, um, and I use these words like, oh, very carefully, um, or I wish there were other words, experimental or um, unexpected. Mm. Uh, she does things with the kupu that are magical and that invite um, invite true participation really of the reader and um, true questions. And Hemi said, this is I won't do this poem justice. I, I, uh, I, I'm not getting into, as you said, um, Herewini, into the kupu. I can't get mm. in there. So, um, And I think it's worth, worth mentioning that yeah. Vaughan is a poet. Yes, yeah. exactly. So yeah. Vaughan is a poet, and he's often um, doing lots of sacrilegious, iconoclastic, rebellious stuff with words as well, and with te reo. It's like, so he was the perfect translator mm. to come in for that poem. And I don't know if I've missed anyone. Dale um, translated her own poem poem and that's a significant mention I think because uh, we we did want to leave it open to people to translate there we weren't going to boss people into you know give us a poem and if you will translate it for you and mm. have that kind of um, really dominant moment Dale really wanted to translate her own work into English and we were in love with that and totally supportive of that mm. um, yeah Kia ora. Um, and that's a really good place to, to sort of um, shift into the process of translation itself. So, Hirawini, um, in terms of, um, well, both of you, in terms of your process and the process of translation, you know, like, there's the kind of translation that's very pragmatic and linguistic, and then there's a kind of interpretive translation, which I imagine would be more applicable to poetry or fiction or literature. Um, and Hirawini, I wonder if you'd like to talk about the way, you know, did, did you have to come to terms with the weight of the poem in order to be able to translate it? Or what's your process for, for getting into the language? Okay, uh, Just before I go there, um, you mentioned about Vaughan um, translating true poem. Well, Vaughan has actually written a comment in this book here, which is on one of the tables outside. It's free. And he talks about translation between languages, what he went through to translate that poem. Yeah. So it's, really it's in there. Highly recommend it. 
Okay. So that's a plug for for him. Okay, the way to it. Ooh. What's my process? My process, um, what I did do, I got the poem, I read it, and then I just fuck a Māori tia as best as I can, and that first, first draft, Māori pākehā, Māori pākehā, because I couldn't think of the, of the Māori word at that particular time. I stopped, I went back, and I went taihua. <laughs> As these nannies would say, whakarongo ki te kupu. Listen to the word. So I read the poem in English to try and feel the word. Uh, some of the images of it was, what the hell is going on here? Um, it talks about a woman at a... Carnival. Shut up. <laughs> and I'm going, what's a carnival? So, you know, I played with it. And my experience of a carnival was the regatta at Ngaru Awahia. The big spinning wheels, all the people around, and the smell of hot dogs and chips. And that put me in the zone. <laughs> so when I went back through the English, I was able to sort of walk with the words going through. This is what I see, that's what I see. Once that was done, I was going, kapai. I think I've got the wairua of the kupu pākehā. And I have had friends, whānau, say, there's no wairua in Pākehā, and I'm going, oh, yes, there is. Because mm. the wairua is inside the person. Mm. The person utters the voice. Mm. The wairua is in there. Mm. Okay? If you can't hear it, then, ah, the whakarongo, switch on the ears. Mm. It is there. When I translated, I wasn't sure whether the wairua Māori was in the words, and I went, oh, no, it's like... Placing, mm. placing, mm. and to be fear, uh, fear, uh, F-A-I-R, <laughs> to the kupu, mm. the mana o te kupu, the tikanga me te kawa o te kupu, pākeha me te kupu Māori, mm -hmm. trying to bridge them together. Uh, I'm not one when I whaka Māori te o ngā mea pākeha or when I translate Māori into Pākehā. I'm not the person that just slams Māori kupu on it and hope for the best. Mm. Because I won't be doing them justice mm -hmm. if I did that. Mm. And I could hear my mother going, hey, mm. what's that about? Mm. So, mm. the way you do a bit of the kupu is in both languages. Mm. It's how you read it. Mm -hmm. Kia ora. Yeah. Kia ora. Yeah. Mm. Fana, what's you know? How, how have you approached that when obviously translating um, between English and Greek? And maybe you'd like to just give us a little history lesson oh about the <laughs> just a mini history lesson, like you know, about the relationship between Greek and colonisation, because there's a right. relationship in terms of how yeah. languages are received and how language. What is the dominant language, and what's that? Mm, what's mm, that mm. like? Um, so I think, yes, uh, I think Greece uh, occupies quite an uncomfortable position in, in, in Europe. I th I, living there, I felt it was much more, and I lived in Crete, uh, it was to me much more like Middle East that I'd experienced. Um, there's a, 
it's very, it has a very uneasy relationship and has had a very uneasy relationship with Europe for hundreds and hundreds of years. And sure, the Western canon is absorbed like, I don't know, ancient Greek mythology, blah, blah, blah. But, um, uh, but, but the Greek identity, I, I would say, um, especially given the more recent political and economic events, feels colonized. Um, they feel, when I came back from, from Greece and wanted to translate the poems that I'm calling quite political, uh, they, are, they respond to a kind of um, sort of dominant European colonization. And, um, and one of the um, results of that is language, in fact. So yes, there's the Greek language, but uh, a lot of the poems that I have been drawn to deal with English um, becoming more and more sort of a dominant language player and the sort of a kind of expression and enactment of a sort of a, a larger do sort of dominance. Um, and and the, the language has a very, diff has a difficult, um, has a difficult uh, sort of history. Um, so I feel that my translation gesture is quite political. I kind of, uh, I, I feel that uh, an author may or may not be enacting a political gesture, a, a, a translator's political gesture um, will be different, um, will have different kopapa, will have different motivations, um, that there are unique contexts. I do feel that part of that process is a rejection of the ego. Um, I do feel that, like you're saying, Hirawina, you sort of, to, to do any process of translation justice, you have to wear the poem or the, the original work, um, or, or sort of get under the skin of it as much as possible um, and reject your own kind of consciousness, if that makes sense. And that is not a Western concept, to my mind. Um, it is, uh, and that multiplicity, I think, where there are, there's more than one ego, that's a, that's a rejection of the whole notion of, like, single authorship. Mm. That's really, mm. there are multiple authors here, and there are multiple histories being enacted through the present moment that cannot be ignored. Mm. And... Um, and I feel very selfless, mm. at a loss, lost, <laughs> but as selfless as possible in translating. Um, and feeling, just a, as a final comment there, the, the languages, both the original and the, both the source and then the language to which one is translating, um, absolutely, as Hedda, when you said, they have, you have to feel the spirit of both and... Um, and uh, as much as possible, there has to be a kind of a fight against hierarchy, like an anti-hierarchy. There's to be a, uh, you know, there's not one, it's not a first space and a second space. They have to be mm. as equal as possible in the process. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think that's really fascinating, and I will ask the questions in a minute. So if you've got burning questions, just get ready. But um, the, one of the interesting things for me, um, at being one of the contributors, uh, well, there were so many interesting things, but one of the amazing, unexpected elements that I think relates to what you guys what you, you know, have been saying, um, coming from a position of learning the deal later in life and only being 
a baby at it. Um, and coming from that place of language trauma, you know, where the heritage language has been lost, something quite incredible happened. So, you know, I think about Honi Tufari and Patricia Grace and all of our kind of literary forebears who, who have in the sort of academic literature about them, it's been talked about how they have managed to freight in te ao Māori on, on English, you know. But that's incredibly challenging for me especially, and I've often found, especially during poetry, writing poetry, when I want to write something incredibly um, uh, culturally um, bound, that it's inc really difficult to find the English that can help me do that, or that can allow that to even become a thing, you know, and I feel like I'm talking around a thing or struggling to, to make sense of it. Um, and what this book did, so when we're talking about um, uh, translation being political, we're talking about we're talking about language choice. You know, whether you like it or not, the, the dominant language has got ideological information that it's freighting in, and we know this from history, and we know this from the way that Te Reo Māori stories were changed, you know, when they were translated in the first instance, regardless of whether there was any malicious intent. Like, that's not even about it. But, but what happened was a transition and a massive change in thinking and the way in which things were thought about. And what was really fascinating to me when I was thinking about this book um, was that I, and all of the wahine involved in, in, the, um, in writing the source poetry, we were, we were given the brief of writing about mana wahine. And so we were, I, I can only speak for myself, so I was drawing on um, an immense line of incredible Māori women that, that I have, that I feel stand behind me. So I don't feel like I wrote this poem, and I had an interesting conversation with Mariah Rakudaku about that, where we were both saying for our poems, oh, we didn't write that, bro, they were standing there, they wrote that. You know, like, this incredible feeling. And what happened when it was translated into Te Reo, which blew me away, and I did not expect, although I should have been able to foresee that, was an incredible sense of an ancestral speaking back, which I could not not have anticipated. I did not anticipate that. And there were phrases, Hiruini was, I'm so honoured, was the translator for the poem that I contributed. And uh, I did not anticipate and could not have, uh, I, and still am struggling to articulate the incredible um, honour and joy I felt at reading the way in which he translated some things which I didn't have the English for. So now when I read that poem in public I often will, um, will recognise Heruini because for me a translator is the poet themselves. They did their own poet poem um, alongside my poem but I will often read a braided version and I will leave out some of the English I wrote in favour of the real and I will leave, you know, and I will braid in the rest, you know, because it said it better than I could say it, you know. Oh, it blew me away. So, so I wonder, Hedwini, if you would like to talk about that at all, about that process and about that incredible um, ability of, you know, in a different political frame, in a different way that this book has done, which I think just generally translating doesn't sort of capture, you know, you're doing something quite magical, translating for us wahine Māori, especially those of us who, who, who are trying to reacquire a language that has been taken from us, um, and, and re... Uh, empowering those poems. Just a small thing. I don't do small. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, well, first of all, when, yeah, when it came to me to be a translator, and I found um, the kōrero was about manawahine, I would go and find manawahine to translate. Don't bring the manatane into this picture. It's about manawahine. 
Then I played with it and I went well. Rose Peter would always say, The male and the female is in every one of us. Kapoi. Okay. That gave me the door opener. Now, it's. Some of the words, I think, with me, political, politically, I did not know Anahira. A Google can only tell you so much. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know this woman. And my um, girl is home based from Hauraki with a little bit of snippet of Manyapoto in there as well. But that's my home base real. Some of the words that I use are from home. Um, like we have a, a word in here, I've called it hakwi, and that's a group of elder women. Um, when I first wrote the Māori, it was ruruhi. But then when I went back after my zoni visit and I saw the words ancient wahine, I went, oh, no, Ruruhi can be anyone from mid-40s up sort of thing. Those are Ruruhi, someone's spouse or wahenema. But a hākui, to me, if you can picture the old nanny with the moko, the long grey hair sitting in the sun, you know, just doing this with her fingers, to me that was ancient wahine. Mm. I thought, okay, Ruruhi's no good. Queer, oh, come on, maroke. Hakui. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But not knowing what um, tribal area Anahira comes from and what words they use. Mm. And perhaps it could be in the future that we revisit this and then start to add in Ngāreo. Hakui, my toiwi. You know, there's so much potential in it. Uh, there's another one. This, I love saying it all the time because I didn't know what it was. Elixirs of ladies. I thought, oh, okay, ladies of the night. Yeah, got it. <laughs> so I went into the dictionary to have a look. What did that word mean? And I was going, oh my gosh, no, it's not that. <laughs> and it's like the heroines. So. With my mahi, I'm translating Waiata from the Waikato River, and I called the Waikato River a wahine. Mm. So I had just come across this word called tua wahine, mm. tua wahine, mm. which is heroin. I went, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> because there was no other word I could come across. He wahine, something or other. But when I found this word, tua wahine actually is our heroine. Mm. I went, kāpai, meant to be. Mm. <laughs> kia ora, kia ora. So, um, just at this juncture, are there any questions? This, yeah, that's such an interesting talk, and I feel like everyone should be here because... Nāhoa, hoki, Yeah! <laughs> we're talking about translation, but actually we're celebrating language, and we I think are. this is what bring, brings writers together. Uh, language choice is political, mm. and that just really speaks to me as a writer doing writing essays. Mm. And um, a couple of times when I've had an editor come along, sometimes wanting to add in mm. the... Um, uh, 
I've written a kupu Māori and then the person has wanted to, to offer that English translation. So I guess for you as translators, a question around when not to translate because, mm. you know, what is lost in translation and sometimes the perfect word mm. is the native word, mm. even though you might be able to say it in more than one word. Mm. Um, there are certain words, and I'm sure we can all think of some, mm. that we just want to stay true mm. to that word. And I also a little bit feel as though if there is an obligation on a reader to do a little bit more work, mm, mm. then kearato, mm, no, kia ora. that's good. Mm, mm. <laughs> Just kia ora. I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on that. Kia ora, that's an awesome question. Um, you want to Yeah, I, I agree with you about that. What the translator is finding the right word, kupu, mm. to bring it into the play. Um, if there is no word, then what do we do? Mm. Throw in that Pākehā, the original kupu? Maybe. Mm. Yeah, well. mm. It's a conversation between you, the translator, and the person that, that wrote. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. I had my own challenges, and it was about constructs, constructs of writing Tata Pākehā from a Western view, you know, drummed into me from school all the way through, the power of the comma, and then the writing constructs of Te Ao Māori. And people may argue, well, there are no writing constructs of Māori or in Te Ao Māori, and I'm going, oh, yes, there is. Yeah. Have a look at the carvings. Every notch in the carving. Mm. Have a look at the moko. Every notch is a construct of writing, mm. according to Heroini. <laughs> right? I just haven't written that thesis yet. <laughs> but the thing is, how to blend both together, mm. bring them across, build that bridge, you know, it's still a challenge, isn't it? Mm. All good. It feels right down here. I think that's um, to, to add to that and to um, take a slightly different tack. You know, like one of the things that's really fascinating for me is this um, issue, and I'm going to call it an issue because we're into the politics now, which is the meaty stuff. Um, the issue of uh, the sense of equivalency between Māori and English words, kupu, especially ones that people use regularly, um, like kiora and um, like fenua. Thanks, Don Brash or Fano was his one, wasn't it? Fano, I know what that is. I like that. He says, um, and. <laughs> Um, you know, oh, this is being recorded, eh? Um, and, and um, you know, her uh, name is Anna Hera. What did he say? Her name is Anna. So, you know, heaps of kupu that are um, have been routinely translated and often translated in a way that's very thin in comparison to the depth of concept, actually. And one of the problems with just just routine, like kura is one of my favourite, you know, like the word kura, like you, that's not just, what, school? Like what? What are you even talking about? Like the depth of that word is just mind-blowing. You can't just use that as a as a one-to-one -one translation. That's a problem. So I really hear what you're saying about that. Um, and I think it goes both ways. I think there are words that we use now in New Zealand that we go, oh, we all know what that is. And that's also a problem. You know, we've lost the depth of it, especially when we come to reading poetry. Um, and, and it's a complicated thing that we have to figure out how to how to work our way through and I think because everyone in this room will be fluent to their speakers in a couple of years we'll be sweet eh? so we'll all be like, like this is where we're going you know um, and also um, 
So I think not only about the, the importance and the complexity of that kupu uh, thing, but when to translate and when not to translate. And I'm you know, reminded, obviously, of Patricia Gray's taking the stand of not translating and not providing a glossary. And I had a situation for um, when I published Purpuraki and um, Helen actually asked me, would you provide a glossary um, for overseas people uh, because it's going to go to an overseas place? Because I'd initially said, no, I won't provide a glossary because, you know, psh. They're not hard. I'm, it's not like all in to do. It's only like there's only you know, like some sentences and some words. Like look them up. It'll be all right. You know you can do it. Um, and so I said no. But then she said to me, well, you know, like some of it's going overseas. So it was really hard for me, and I had to make that decision. Do I provide a translation? And does the translation end up being six pages long because it's trying to talk about conceptual stuff yeah. as opposed to this is the equivalent word you should use it. Yeah. You know, I'm like that's useless um, because that's not what I'm saying, and that's not the power of the of the ambi ambiguous use of words and the multiplicity of language that goes on in a poem, you know? Um, and so what I did, which was, I thought was awesome, <laughs> was I wrote the glossary, and I so that my poem was called Purupuraki to the Lord My God, Weaving the Via Dolorosa, and Ekphrasis on Colin McCann's book series C. So in my glossary, I began with the word ekphrasis. So what I did, because what's often um, not spoken, and the request is often, can you translate all the Māori words? And my thing was, actually, there's heaps of words people probably don't know because they're not in common usage. So ekphrasis being one of them. So I began with ekphrasis, and then I only listed the ones that I thought were unusual. You know, that are all words that I thought were unusual. I'm like, I'm not fucking translating aroha. I said, fuck. <laughs> Sorry. Karoha. <laughs> you know, I'm not translating that. Come on. You know, like that. So, so these are, but these are, these are still things in play that we have to make. These are decisions we have to make as we go along. We don't know. You know, we're navigating um, how to, na we're figuring out how to navigate this territory. And it's complex, which is why everyone should be in this conversation you know this is a conversation we should be having especially as for instance my son is in compulsory to do Maori classes which he's loving but you know like it's it's a changing landscape we're in now these are important questions we need to be asking Vana <laughs> go Vana <laughs> um, when did you publish Porapuraki I'm just curious what 15? Okay, so this is so interesting because when I published with Helen Ethica Island Bay Leaves in 2009, yeah. we also had a discussion yeah. about glossary. So I was putting in a lot of Greek words that I refused to translate. And I mean, that's really crazy pants because who speaks Greek? But in New Zealand, not that many of us. But, um, <laughs> but I also felt like that idea where I cannot exoticize this that's concept. Right. Yeah. and all reduce it. Aye. I cannot do that. Mm. And it would have been inauthentic and a lie, quite basically. Mm. So um, I remember having that same conversation and refusing a glossary and just uh, letting the words hopefully find their place. And I feel like language maybe is, I mean, I think it is a place. It is not just, you know, obviously hieroglyphs on a page. It's a place that you go to, that you visit, that you inhabit, that changes you, that you change. Um, it's almost, to me, a physical kind of thing that you walk into and you, you can change. So, you know, just as I can't change that wall when we walk into this room together, I can't change a word that I feel represents that um, 
Just yell. Just yell. You know, I feel like... We can tell to speak into this. Yeah, so I agree with everything that's been said, basically. And I also want to say that... You know, we know now that there are many Englishes. We know that there are... There's not just one hegemonic, dominant structure of one single language with its set of rules that, you know, is in a textbook that we follow. Um, Especially, you know, with the movement of peoples, you know, there are multilingual... Um, there's so much multilingualism, but beyond that, beyond the and you know words of different languages inhabiting cohabiting a space, um, there's uh, there's an author that I met recently um, called uh, Eugene Ostashevsky, Russian, and he talks about how so he he moved to America with his parents um, as a as a toddler, and ultimately English. Began, became his lingua franca. He sort of felt much more um, proficient in English as an author. However, he says his, his, he's not writing English. He writes English, but he's not writing English. Mm. This English mm. is um, cross-border, multiple layers, uh, comes from the Russian. Um, is, he calls it translingualism, which I quite like as a term because it throws up that whole, you know, um, rule book in a way and and says to us it allows us the freedom to to use words in a in a democratic and in an authentic way mm. um, so yeah maybe we should move into i mean I, I love that you say that we do have to be careful however especially mm. in the context of Aotearoa where we think we're so cool with code switching and yeah throw in a maru kupu and that, you know that's that's also we have to be careful not to be lazy mm. um, and not to take things for granted mm. which is another issue that I can see you know needing to be addressed mm. yeah thank you so we're almost at the end of the session and we've only just oh. begun getting into the meat you know but I wondered is there any more questions does anybody else have a burning question they'd like to ask don't be intimidated by these amazing speakers just here freaking you out Kia ora. Um, it's not really a question more, I guess more of a statement it might turn into a question I oh, don't okay. know yeah. um, but I'm so glad that you mentioned lingua franca because I was um, I was going to ask you about um, the, the Greek feeling of, of colonised and I was wondering if, if that's because of the the biggest industry in Greece to my knowledge is, is tourism mm. and, and everyone goes to Greece to look at the ancient things no one actually goes to Greece to see the things that they have now and I and I wondered you know if, if that is a big push and also the fact that um, English is the lingua franca at the moment which um, if you if anyone is is bilingual at least um, we're already kind of resisting that and we and I love that that you mentioned not being lazy because I feel like it's a very um, the fact that English has become a lingua franca people who only speak English are almost becoming lazy in the fact of oh well we are the lingua franca so you have to learn mm. how we speak not 
the, you know, not the other way round. And I, um, I love what you mentioned about um, just putting the words on the page and letting the reader do the work. Mm. You know, if you don't know a word, mm. look it up. It's I, not hard. I. You know, <laughs> like do the work yourself and try and 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 bring in the depths of the words. And we've almost become lazy in English as well because there are words that have great etymology, mm. and but people don't look that up anymore mm. because they're like, oh, this is how it is now, and mm. this is what it is now. So I love that through poetry in particular because the words are so specific mm. that we are digging deeper and we are questioning things and we are kind of raising the middle finger mm. to, you know, that, that big lingua franca that we don't, you know, it's more yeah. inclusive of the world that we live in mm. if we are keep pushing these boundaries and I love it and mm. thank you so much. Kia ora. Kia ora. Thank you. I mean, I think that, that so perfectly sums up what we've talked about today because, you know, not only translation in general, but poetry is so deliberate. Mm. Like, we didn't accidentally use those words, you know? It's on purpose. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I didn't get her other stuff to translate. <laughs> Kia ora. Um, okay. And yeah. anyway, so kotai mai ki te mutunga. Unfortunately, ai, engari. Here's one for your pinati. <laughs> it's only three letters, eh? If you can write it down. Ako. Right. Teach and learn. Right. Okay? So this is the phenomenon of ako according to Hiruini. A-K-O. Kwa. K-O-A. Mm. Enjoyment. Happy chappy. If you or the people you're talking to are not happy chappy, there is no teaching and learning happening. <laughs> Kapai? Third one, kao, K-A-O. Mm. Negation. No, it's okay to say no. Mm. If you're not happy with the way things are going with your ako, say no. But don't say it for the sake of saying no. Do something about it. Oka. Oka is like, okay, eh? It's cutting back the layers, peeling back the layers. Deconstruct to reconstruct. Mm, okay. Peeling back the layers. Mm. And when you get to a point, you go back again. Ako, kwa. Might have to jump kao because you don't need it anymore. Oka, ka, ao. K-A-A-O. Still three letters. Ka, ao, enlightenment. I get it now. Now, this is what I call the phenomenon of digging into the words. Three letters, and yet so many concepts, philosophies within those three letters. Mm. Play with our kupu. We're allowed. Mm, it's our kupu. They said. <laughs> Kia ora. Okay, so um, because there's another session starting at 4.30, I don't want you to miss out, but um, in order to conclude, I wondered, would you like to hear Hiruini and Vana just read something from Tataifetu? Let's do that, eh? Because they're here and it's here, and that would be amazing. So, kia ora, e tu. <laughs> um, so, this opens... Um, this opens uh, Tatai Fatu. It's a collaborative poem that Mariah and I uh, wrote together over text message um, as the book was going to print. <laughs> so it was like very um, last minute, but we'd had so much talking about it that it sort of came very easily. I'm only going to read the first few lines. Um, uh, I'm just going to read that first page. And it's just in English. Um, becoming. She is nothingness. Becoming space. Becoming the in-between, becoming
becoming form, becoming stars, becoming nebula, words, becoming sentences, becoming sounds, becoming... Uh, this is the last verse of In Search of Mana Wahine. It's the words, I'll do it in English and in Māori. Woman, wahine, can bring them home, calling them back to the aho tapu. We, girl, are attached in lines. No slate of hand can break or render. When we bleed, we do not die. Wahine ma, kawea mai ki ta kainga, karangahia mai ki ta hotapu, ko taua e hine, kua viria nei, e kore e fati e te ringa noa iho, ko te totonga taua ki hai te mate. New Zealand Society of Authors, Tipuni Kaituhi o Aotearoa, Pen and Z Incorporated, is the principal organisation representing writers in New Zealand. We want to continue to provide opportunities for you to grow in your professional development. That's why we've started NZSA Web Workshops. Visit our website, authors.org.nz, to find out about these opportunities. Experienced writers and teachers will lead them. And we hope that they help you to grow as a writer and face whatever tomorrow brings. Our website again is authors.org.nz. 